This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WTDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton-wool clouds, and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with smoke. Higher and higher, filling it with smoke. Filling it with smoke. They sound quite mad, don't they? My guest this morning is Terry Marks Tarlow. Terry Marks Tarlow is a clinical psychotherapist, a yoga teacher, artist, and dancer, specializing in deep transformational work, bringing mindfulness, embodied movement, and creativity into her practice. She's written numerous books and articles on play, creativity, nonlinear science, and the use of intuition in psychotherapy as well as a recent coloring book for adults and older children called Truly Mindful Coloring, which explores the possibility of healing through self-expression and self-examination. She's also written a libretto for an opera titled Cracked Orlando, which you could probably call a fractal opera, but more on that later. We'll begin this morning with an interview I recorded with Terry two weeks ago while she was in town giving a workshop at Goddard. And then she'll be joining us over the phone from her home in L.A. to continue the conversation during the second half of the show. So I thought I would open with a quote from one of your articles. I think this is from William Stanley. Newtonian physics implied the universe was a vast machine, the quantum model showed there is no machine but a mysterious entanglement with the observer. The area of preparation must now include the participant observer. Newtonian physics suggested an end to free will and creativity. The quantum model put the observer back in the universe as a participant creator. In Newton's world, ambiguity was the enemy. Mechanism stresses the absolute, the unchanging, and the certain. Things are either or, good, bad. In the quantum world, reality is both and. A coexistence of mutually contradictory possibilities, all equally true, each one a potentially possible constituent of reality. A-causal, non-local synchronicities can give rise to events that seem to pop up out of thin air. There are no isolated, separate, closed systems in nature. In this universe of wholeness, everything affects everything else, from the most fundamental particles to faraway galaxies at the edge of the universe. Wow. 
<laughs> well, need I say anything more? Well, yeah. I would really like to know how you got into nonlinear science and how you integrate this into your work. That, to me, is really fascinating. Oh, you said you like to go deep, and you're jumping there right at the very beginning here. Well, I like to set the tone. Okay. How did I get into it? Actually, I think that's the Feynman story. When I went to graduate school at UCLA, I did a dissertation in depression, and I really don't like depression. I didn't have any interest in what I did, and it was really just to get out of there. Then I had this early life crisis when I got out because I wasn't sure what I was interested in. And when I got interested in creativity, I then put something in to teach a course at UCLA Extension as a way of learning about creativity. I, through that process, wound up being asked to moderate this huge course, which scared me to death because I didn't feel qualified at all. I was a merely student who, who didn't know anything about creativity, but in the process, it opened all these doors. And one of these doors was uh, the psychiatrist, Oscar Janiger, who fed LSD to artists in the 60s and had never told anyone about it professionally because he was teaching at Irvine and he wanted to remain respectable. So I wound up in a drawing session with um, Richard Feynman, and we would meet weekly, and I realized that I had the opportunity to pick the brain of reputedly the smartest man in the world, and I started to read all about science at that point and kind of stumbled into nonlinear science, uh, which was really kind of coming to the forefront at the time. So that's how I got into it. So what really interested you about it, and how did you end up integrating into your psychotherapy you know, work? I, I think I've always been intuitively drawn that there's just something hums inside me, something zings inside me when I find profundity. But I, I think what part of what you read about paradox is one of the most interesting things to me. There's something very deep about it. Maybe it's having read Cohen's and this sort of thing and having a spiritual sense that this is the path to enlightenment. And uh, Alan Watts, I used to love Alan Watts and speak about the radio. And so just the sense that, that there's something very, very deep about this path. And it's away from logic there's, there, there's, I don't know, something feels sterile about logic. And when you do therapy, there's nothing sterile about it at all. It's messy and it's ambiguous. It's everything that you read in that quote. It's filled with complexity. It's filled with mystery. So the sides had the same kinds of feeling tones to me as therapy does. So how do you deal with all that complexity and ambiguity and messiness in your therapy work with clients? Well, I definitely don't try to fix people. <laughs> <laughs> That's convenient. <laughs> it's very convenient. And I, I come at it more from a, the position of a voyeur than an earth mother. And that's helpful, too. I'm really fascinated. And also, 
My husband likes to say that my power as a therapist is in really empowering people and having this sort of relentless hope and positivity. So I don't tend to diagnose and pathologize and I am very good at finding progress in tiny little spaces. And once you find the progress, if you verbalize it, it tends to build on itself. So that helps people change quickly. So do you find that that has an infectious effect on your clients? I think, I think yeah, I think I'm an inspirational therapist. People feel inspired by my energy and focus and, and this sort of thing. And then, yeah, everything is contagious. So it sounds like you have this ability to see like these pinpricks of light in the darkness. Exactly, yeah. And then somehow your your sense of optimism and hope feeds it. Right. And you connect to it. Right. And you kind of nurture that in that healing space right. with your clients. I think that's right. And uh-huh. I no I haven't quite ver- that's a beautiful way of verbalizing it. I just love that approach, which is mm-hmm. exactly why I would love to have you as my therapist, <laughs> you know, at least just for the fun of it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it is fun. I it also would, like to laugh. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You talk a lot about humor and creativity and play in your work. Right. And how do you bring those into your psychotherapy work when you have clients who come in who are bringing their problems and their issues? And often they're not even clear about what their problems are. And, and you're kind of in this space of unknowing. Uh-huh. And you have the responsibility of trying to figure out what's going on doing your your sleuthing Um, and all that sometimes sometimes humor is a way of gaining perspective it's also a way of joining with a person to gain perspective and being on the same side and i'm not talking about sarcastic humor because that doesn't work at all although i I shouldn't I, i don't have rules like that because even every rule does get broken too so there's probably a place for for sarcasm But I think play makes it safe for people also. Children learn the most through play. They they find their cutting edge in play. And there are no consequences. So people can play with new possibilities and feel safe about doing that. It lightens up the dark. And it helps to not take oneself too seriously. I think that also can work well. So is play something that you do in your therapy work, or is it something that arises spontaneously? It arises spontaneously, and I am not a play therapist, and I don't work with children. So it's really at an implicit level that play happens, not so much an explicit level. And is it something that you're aware is happening, or is it something that that you only recognize Mm. in retrospect? Probably more in retrospect, yeah. So I'm curious, if it's happening implicitly, are you just like playing into the play in the moment with your clients? That's a good way of putting it. Because you talk a lot about the space between the client mm-hmm. and therapist. Mm-hmm. Right. So for example, let's say I have somebody who comes in and is more depressed and is stuck somewhere. And it could be really hard if somebody is really repetitive could be hard to keep interest. So 
I keep interest partly by playing with that whole situation. I'm trying to find a way in to shift to shift something. And so I'll just play with entering in different ways. And that feels like a form of play to see what I can do to help generate something different and get some movement happening. So it's it's almost like playing with ideas sometimes. And that would be a situation where I'm almost playing with myself more, mm-hmm. you know, and in an effort to connect in a different way and draw the person into play or into taking a risk emotionally or something like that. So you're really exploring relationship with the person. Oh, definitely. This is all relational play. <sighs> and I think play at the implicit level is like a relational bid for connection or disconnection and often a statement of safety or lack of safety and so I I kind of listen between the words to to find that feeling which is really about the relationship and what's needed some people need me to come in and and try to connect in a sort of aggressive way some people need me to stand back because they've been intruded upon or they've been violated and they need to know I can take care of myself if they have horrible stuff to say that I won't get too affected by it or or this sort of thing. So there's all these this implicit messaging back and forth that most of it's not conscious. It's all not conscious and some of it trickles up to consciousness. That's so fascinating. I was going to ask you how do you know which way to go? But then you you just said that a lot of it's happening Unconsciously, Yeah, the body knows. It's weird. The body knows. So talk about how the, the body the un- knows. Because the unconscious is in the body. I think Freud started out at the very disembodied place where he wasn't, he wasn't looking at his patients. They weren't looking at him. He's sitting away and he's just listening as if kind of <laughs> the words are floating and nobody has any bodies. Mm-hmm. But even there. So I think we got this initial sense of of the unconscious being in the head Mm -hmm. somehow. But it's not. It's in the body. It's in the implicit movement and processing that happens underneath awareness, which is most of of what we process. And awareness is sort of like the icing on the cake that gives us the illusion that we have some control over what's happening. But it's after the fact. So, psychotherapy work, isn't it the work of bringing that implicit, unconscious stuff into the light of awareness and Uh, making it explicit? No, actually, not necessarily. Ah. Not necessarily. Because, and that's a really common fallacy, as if there's one, there's sort of one train, chain or something from unconscious to conscious, but there are two separate ones. There's an implicit and there's an explicit consciousness is in the explicit and some people get healed without ever being explicit about it like children for example may not have to verbalize what's happening at all but if the relationship is healed and if they become more secure in it and they become more secure with themselves and more connected to their own intuition and their own instincts they don't need to be self-conscious about or you know have conscious awareness of that process most people in therapy 
do, but it isn't converting one to the other. It's really, that's a relational process too. The relationship between the explicit and the implicit is another level. It's like a self-self relations. So they're not separate things. They are separate things. But, and you have to bridge but they, them with... They may, be, they may not be. They, you know, some people have a real split between conscious and unconscious. A real split. And is that kind it's, of a split unhealthy or is unhealthy, that... unhealthy, yeah. Okay. It's unhealthy. I guess that's what I was alluding yeah, yeah. to. Yeah. Right. I mean, you need, you know, the, the more we can bridge that gap with awareness, the healthier we are, certainly as adults. But, you know, if I had to pick one, it's the implicit level that needs to be healed. I mean, mm. that's what... Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, you, you said that you don't necessarily need to bring the implicit into awareness, right. but don't we have to go into the implicit? Like the journey of going into the underworld, mythologically? Um, Not that we necessarily need to yeah, talk most, about I mean, it. Most people do. Well, certainly, yeah. We certainly need to dive into our dark side, if mm-hmm. that's what you mean. Yeah, and experience, experience ourselves fully. Experience all our emotions and anything that's been repressed or dissociated. Absolutely. But the direct experience is a little different than the awareness of the experience right. or the interpretation of the experience. Yeah. So, yeah, we have to dive into ourselves deeply. So, that brings up another fascinating kind of conundrum. When you're doing psychotherapy work with people, you just mentioned the importance is for them to directly experience what's inside themselves. Right, rather than to analyze. And rather than even talking about it necessarily. Necessarily, right. How do you deal with that without necessitating them actually talking about things so that you're aware of what they're going through? And how aware of what they're going through do you need to be or can you, just through your, your bodily relationship with them, recognize that they're in that authentic place? I think different therapists have different levels of skill in feeling out what's happening inside of someone when they're, say, highly emotional or about to become emotional or little tiny shifts in the face and the body that indicate a shift in self-state. I am actually less skilled than some in my workshop yesterday, there was a woman who I couldn't believe how skilled she was. I could tell. And of course, after 30 years of practice, I've gotten way more skilled than I was, and I compensate in lots of different ways. But I tend to take information in more from the outside than the inside. And so I'm a little less body connected than some people, and especially somatic workers, and so I do rely more on words, but I know when to ask for words by what's going on, and there's some advantage to the level that I trust people to speak about what's happening. So now I'm violating what I said to you earlier um, in the sense that I'm pretty word-focused, 
But it also fits in with the ambiguity and the and paradox. No rules yeah, and, and the paradox. paradox. Yeah. So, so you're yeah. you're still safe. It's okay, right? Yeah. I know. <laughs> see, see how it's safe to yeah. to work with paradox. I can so it sounds like myself and so, so it sounds like you allow a lot of space for what you could call as mistakes and and momentary failures. Well, in, mistakes in, are great in the exploration. Mistakes are great because because when I mess up and I'm non-defensive about it, I'm modeling something that mm. is so important mm. for people. Mm. And actually that I think being non-defensive is one of my greatest strengths as a therapist. Mm-hmm. If someone says, if I say make an interpretation and someone says that's wrong, I, I will always back away um, from pressing. I, I rarely have the sense that I know more than the person does. Although, so you know, again, if to any role, there's an exception. Once in a while, I'll have a sense that something's going on that the person's not yet aware of. But I feel like it's it's interesting actually to help people connect with their unconscious because it's tricky business to. You know, by the very definition, it's an area of self that is not conscious. So, how do you know what's true with something? And so, I like to describe it as it's a kind of resonance with it. Like, you'll know if something is wrong, it just won't resonate at all. But it's a sideways kind of feeling, not a frontways feeling of sensing that could be so and that's all that I would need with something like that something could be so and then let it simmer and see what what brews out of that it's a little bit like peripheral vision it's looking at the stars mm-hmm. you can see them more clearly than looking straight on when they're faint you talk a lot about and write a lot about intuition in your psychotherapy mm-hmm. work is that what you're referring to sure that's that's definitely an important part of intuition is is sensing something might be so and finding where the resonances are and how easy is it to trust to learn to trust our intuition and to actually hear it and feel it and and honor it particularly growing up in this culture of ours that's a big topic. I mean, this culture does actually probably does everything to not promote inadvertently to not promote tapping into intuition. I have a a model for how intuition develops that begins with children having complete space for free play and I think that's become less and less safe on the one hand for parents they're afraid to I just somebody told me yesterday that parents are being prosecuted for letting their children run free Mm. as neglect that really scares me because I think that that kind of freedom in the body and the mind and the soul is really important for coming into oneself, finding oneself. So on the one hand, the sense of danger in the environment is problematic. On the other hand, the sort of virtual play that's happening solely, and I have nothing against that kind of play unless it takes the place of the kind of play that includes the full body. 
And then on the other hand, there's too much structure going on. When parents structure every minute of their child's life, there's no opportunity to structure one's own time and come up with one's own rules for engagement. And when children do that, where they make the rules for how to play with one another and then internalize that, that's how they learn how to regulate themselves and how to make society. Mm. I want to get back to the element of risk and danger in play and how important that is, because you write about that too. And it also reminded me of one of my favorite interviews from a couple of years ago with Amy Fusselman, who wrote this amazingly wonderful, very small book called Savage Park about these parks that were developed in Scandinavia. And she got to visit one of them in Tokyo with her two small children. Mm -hmm. And these parks are full of inherent risk because children are allowed to do things that most parents in America would just go through the roof of Fabulous. What are they allowed to do? Like climb things? Well, it was a wide open park and all they had were these attendants in the park to facilitate whatever might need to be done in the park. They didn't do anything other than just be there and make sure that everything was attended to. Wow. And children were allowed to do whatever they could get themselves into. Wow, how fabulous. Yeah, exactly. And that's what made this book so fascinating. So I would love to hear your perspective on why that's so important in a child's development. Children navigate by going to edges. They just naturally, I mean, do you remember when you were a kid spinning until you fell down? Well, we're always testing the limits. Always testing the limits because we learn by crossing lines and all the way through. So that starts in early play where getting dizzy, climbing so high you can't get down, And often doing things where we fall down and hurt ourselves. And hurt ourselves, Because that's how we learn how to navigate in physical space. How to navigate in physical space, but also how to navigate in emotional space. Mm. And, And how to stretch the window of tolerance, affect tolerance. Because by having some pain mixed in with the pleasure and by not being able to tell the difference between the two, that's how we learn to go to our edges and to risk, which, of course, is necessary at an abstract level for creativity as well. And doesn't it help to regulate our relationship with our nervous system, our autonomic oh, nervous system? And how, how does that work? Because that's so critical in, in a child's development because that, of course, sets the tone for an adult's ability to function in life and to self, be self-regulating and to be able to tolerate stress and to be resilient in the face of the unknown and continual change. That's right, that's right. And arousal is the more important dimension than valence. Mm. In other words, being able to tolerate the intensity of emotion is much more important to a dysregulated or pathological state than whether the emotion is positive or negative. We all need the full range of emotion, and a lot of people wind up not being able to tolerate intensity. So when children are throwing themselves around and banging and getting hurt, they're learning to tolerate intensity. 
And that, that really is where resilience comes from. And the window of tolerance stretching wider and wider, which is is a critical dimension to to being able to to let in novelty and and lead an open life to to things coming in without yeah. defense. Right, the ability to stay open. The the ability to stay open is probably the most critical dimension because it's not what actually happens out in the world around us. That's so important, but how we learn to respond to it. Right. And how we stay open, be able to cope with things in the moment and and ultimately to be able to stay present in the face of anything that's occurring. Exactly. And that seems to be the goal if if there's such a thing as a goal in psychotherapy work. That's well put. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's the great challenge. And as you mentioned also, to do that emotionally is so like in relationship, because we're continually being tested in on an emotional level in ways that, that are probably even more challenging than the physical challenges. Absolutely. And in intimate relations, in our romantic relationships, people don't seem to understand that they're going to be faced with what feels life-shattering and threatening. Even worse than death itself in yeah. many ways. Yeah, annihilation. The worst potential kind of... annihilation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's so easy to think that because we're feeling that it's the wrong person, but it's it goes hand in hand with passion, depth. So I've got a couple of different metaphors for for what that is like and one of them is being in an intimate relationship is like hugging a person with one hand and having a knife in the other hand that's to the throat. <laughs> <laughs> and each person holds that knife. Which, shall I say, this is being very, very personal. Yeah. But on my own honeymoon, the knife took the form of being afraid I was going to kill my husband. Oh, okay. He got sick. We were in, we were in Indonesia. And he got sick, so I was going out and playing, and he was—he had a fever, and I realized I was afraid I was going to kill him, and that I hadn't gotten in an intimate relationship because the last intimate relationship I had been in, my boyfriend basically went psychotic and never recovered. Mm-hmm. And I had internalized responsibility for that without realizing that I even felt that way and that I had kept myself out of relationships because of that at some level. There were other reasons too. And boom, that popped up. Wow. That reminded me of a of a kind of psychotic relationship I was involved in many, many years ago that <laughs> it's amazing the dimensions of human relationships it and, is. and experience. And what comes up, what what emerges from the unconscious. So And how when two human beings with their own issues come, come together, together. And, and start bouncing off of each other. And guess what he did when I said that to him, that I was afraid I'd kill him? He laughed. <laughs> and when he laughed, it wasn't a mean laugh. And mm-hmm. it actually completely evaporated that feeling of mine because he had been through so much in his life. And here I was this little nice thing that he couldn't <laughs> imagine killing him. And that was the perfect response for me. And I guess actually that sort of says something about a healing power of laughter sometimes. Yeah. It diffuses 
It can diffuse the tension, yeah. yeah. And turn the whole perceived situation on its head. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you seem to really love your work. I do love my work. And I'm wondering, how have you managed to keep your work fresh and alive and not burn out? Well, and that's the funny thing, is that I think I'm fresher and more alive with it than I've ever been. And it's now I was licensed in 85. And, you know, I think because it's a two-way street, I think that when people transform, I transform too, and it's fascinating to have that happen. So I've really never, I've never suffered from burnout, and I've never even really tasted it except in a momentary way and I think maybe because it's I learn so much and I grow so much from what I do and also I think the focus on creativity and that people wind up bringing out their own creativity whether or not they knew they were coming in for that because I I believe that that's kind of the highest level for everyone even though I don't mean artistic creativity, but just uh, being able to be new Mm. in some way, whether it's how you drive to work or how you teach your class or, you know. It's like the presence that you bring into each moment. Exactly. And I like the Ellen Langer way of thinking of mindfulness as opposed to the John Kabat-Zinn way of thinking, of perceiving novelty. Mm. So... Talk about novelty and the importance of novelty. And We're maybe back to the nonlinear, because in the nonlinear universe, it changes all the time. Nothing stays the same. It's, there's just an illusion because it's a longer time scale. And so everything is, is new, minute to minute. And it's just our human limitation that gives the illusion of something repeating. So nothing does repeat. And the ability to feel that, I guess, is a way of, a good way of striving to embody the true nonlinearity of the universe. And I think if we feel it, there's no room to get bored. I'm an enemy to boredom. I told my kids when they were little that if you're bored, it's because you're boring. And they they stop saying they're bored. Mm. I don't think either one of them gets bored. Yeah, and burnout, I think, is an imbalance in someone. There's an imbalance. There's something. There's something that is being ena- either enacted from their own issues. Very often, it's if a child has feels pressure to take care of another member of the family at their own expense then that becomes a recipe for burning out. Or compassion fatigue is where the emotional dimension of contagion sort of outpaces the cognitive dimension of understanding the world of the other and understanding the differences between self and other in a more cognitive way. So you need a balance there. So how do you integrate your psychotherapy work into the rest of your life because it sounds like you're you're also a very creative person and you must have a lot of other things going on in your life and how much of your life is your psychotherapy work and how much of your life is other stuff and how do they come together in a way that that 
feels balanced mm-hmm. and enriching for you. So, yeah, I would say my psychotherapy is kind of the core that keeps grounding me and regrounding me over and over again. But in terms of my week, I've always only practiced three days a week, really long days. I start at seven often and finish at six, and I never go later than six. I've started earlier and earlier, but never later. And then I use my other days to... um, It depends what stage of life that I'm in. I used to rock climb with my other days. I definitely write books. I do my art. Uh, Most recently, I'm super excited because next week at Lincoln Center, an opera is playing that I wrote the libretto for. And it's the most complicated performance that Juilliard has ever put on and I put fractals in the words of the libretto and the composer Jonathan Daw put fractals in the music and I'm so excited I'm jumping out of my skin and that kind of thing just always whether it's being pulled or just jumping and or leaping into new places that also cross-fertilizes back into my work and keeps me fresh from the outside to bring back in. So sometimes I get stimulated from inside the practice, sometimes from outside. I also dance a lot. I dance maybe four, sometimes five times a week. I do ballet and jazz, and that's like a joy factory for me. So you're taking classes? Taking classes. Yeah. And watching myself learn mm. at my advanced age, watching my my process, and I'm still getting better. I don't think that's an illusion. I think I am still getting better. I started as an adult, so I'm not one of these people that started as a little kid, wrecked my body, and then it's downhill from there. But this and is something that you get real joy out of. I get real joy out. And so this I, is like play. This is like an element of, totally. of play in your life. So you're, right. you play your play in your life. I play with play. <laughs> I guess I have to meta level of play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all the time I'm, I'm playing, in, whether it's with art or in, in dance or with yoga. I, I also do yoga, have for many years, and I, I play with the edges. I'm always, always advancing myself as much as I can in learning about how to do that. And that has something to do with what you said earlier about, you know, finding those tiny little places and then working my way in. Because after you've done like 12,000 sun salutations, it's really, (laughs) it's hard to find something new. Or joy. Well, as I've switched over from mostly having a yoga practice to mostly doing a dance, having mm. a dance at this point, in, mm-hmm. at this stage in my life. Mm-hmm. I may switch back as I keep getting older, but the action for me is in the dance right now. Mm. It's more like cross-training with the yoga mm-hmm. and touching touching home, touching back the foundations and this sort of thing. But but the action is in, is in the dance. Well, it's been great talking with you. I wish we had more time. Oh, it's been great students. to talk to you, too. We've, I've said some stuff I've never said before, and that's really fun. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. I love when that happens. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so again, thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. It's been fabulous.
was Terry Marks Tarlow from an interview I did a couple of weeks ago. And on the phone with me now is the actual Terry Marks Tarlow live from her home in, in L.A. Good morning, Terry. Good morning. I'm so happy to be with you. I'm so glad to have you back. That last interview that our listeners got to hear and I got to hear was really wonderful and I enjoyed doing that so much. And I think it laid a really good foundation for going deeper into some other topics that you wrote about in a couple of your articles, which I really, really enjoyed, which I read in the last couple of days again. In particular, your article, Myth, Metaphor, and Evolving Self-Awareness, and your reading Ah. of the Oedipus myth, which is a wonderful way of mapping the evolutionary journey of self-awareness in human consciousness. And I thought that would be really fascinating to talk about. And also fractals, which I think will fit in that conversation as well, because it's all totally interrelated, isn't it? It is totally interrelated, but I'd be fascinated to see how you might fit those two together. They're they're kind of separate in my mind with uh, Oedipus, the redoing of the Oedipus story being more about the role of metaphor mm-hmm. and the important role of metaphor in human consciousness. But I'll be interested to see how you might weave those things together. I may not actually weave them together. I may just leave fractals for later. Okay. It just depends on how it all unfolds. Yes. I think it's the unfolding more than the weave. I mean, weaving is part of the unfolding. That's true. And I think I'll I'll defer to the unfolding as much as I can. So maybe you could start by quickly laying out the... Oedipus myth and the riddle of the Sphinx. Okay. Uh, The Oedipus myth, uh, let me start with the role of the Oedipus myth in psychoanalysis, and I'll do it really briefly. King Laius went to the Delphi Oracle, and it was predicted that he would be murdered by his son, and also his wife would marry his son. And so in order to prevent that from happening, he ordered his son to be essentially killed. And the shepherd who took the young Oedipus kind of felt sorry for him. And I'm forgetting the details of how Oedipus escaped. Maybe um, he was released by another shepherd and someone else found him and he was raised by another king and queen nearby. And he, too, went to the Delphi Oracle and was told the same thing. And in an attempt to avoid this fate, he went a different direction than Thebes, where he had come from. But he inadvertently met his father, not knowing it was his real father, and he tried to pass, and he wound up killing his father there, and then wound up going to the kingdom where the king had just been killed, and he married his own mother unwittingly. I'm not remembering all the details of the story perfectly, but 
before he was able to enter the land that he came from, the Sphinx was guarding the way for everybody who was trying to enter. Nobody could pass. Right, and wasn't this after the land had become barren and there were these yeah, yeah, as okay. if a curse had been laid upon the land. On the land, right. For yeah. that transgression. Right. And so the Sphinx was killing anyone who could not answer her riddle. What walks on four legs in the morning and two legs in the afternoon and three legs in the evening? And if the person trying to get by could not answer it, she would throw them off the hillside and they would die or she would eat them. And Oedipus was the only one who could answer her. And his answer was, it's humankind or mankind that crawls in the early stages of life, stands upright in middle age and walks with a cane in old age. And so instead of being eaten or thrown off himself, she threw herself off and the land was freed of her. However, and this is another part, I'm not quite remembering the details of how they all found out that he was actually the son of his wife. And at that point, his mother killed herself and Oedipus blinded himself, and he wound up banishing himself from the kingdom because he had sworn to find the murderer of the queen's husband, and when he found it was himself, basically he then was banished. But the part of the story that I focused on and sort of retold from a neurobiological point of view had to do with the riddle of the Sphinx and that being such a turning point in the story and the fact that people were not able to answer that riddle prior to Oedipus because they were thinking about it very literally and trying to find a creature that actually walks differently at different times of the day and that in order to solve that riddle, there needed to be a leap into metaphorical understanding and that and Oedipus was kind of uniquely positioned to be able to do that because he himself, his body had some clues to the answer because he had been shackled and there's a double meaning of his name and then he also wound up walking with a cane in old age so the, the riddle was very self-referential to him in particular. And I think the double meaning of his name is pretty significant. I think Mm -hmm. the the two meanings were swollen foot Mm -hmm. and also... Knows where or something like that. Knows where he came from. Right, knowing where he came from, right. Mm -hmm. And knowing where he came from is this whole embodied piece of knowing where he came from and sensing and looking for his origins was also really, really important. Within psychoanalysis, it's thought that it was only at the point that Freud discovered that myth and kind of attached it to his developmental theory, and his theory originally was really psychosexual development, that that myth was key 
in explaining psychosexual development that psychoanalysis really took off around the world and as a discipline that it required that myth and some other really interesting things that I write about is how the myth was self-referential to Oedipus in the ways we just talked about. It wound up being self-referential in history because Freud in his empire of psychoanalysis wanted to be the king and the sole king and tried to kill his heirs, essentially. He was the father. (laughs) Right. He was the father of psychoanalysis, and Jung was supposed to inherit his kingdom or, you know, was supposed to inherit that role. And because of their disagreements, theoretically, he banished Jung from that role. And so there was a very similar kind of falling out. And actually, that's gone down not just that first iteration. I guess this is the fractal piece to it. Yeah, I was just thinking that myself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, You're you're so right about that, that there's been a a kind of this self-referential, self-similar reverberations of that same theme, that there's not enough room within psychoanalysis for differing opinions. And instead... There have been these explosions and people having to leave and start their own schools of theory. Which is really what what children do with their fathers. Right. And that was a big difference between Jung and Freud as well, is that Jung saw the myth as an interior story rather than an exterior story of literally being about wanting to kill the father and marry the mother, and more a story of what needs to happen internally in the psyche that in order to come into ourselves, whether we're a male or or a female, that we need to sort of kill the authority, the internal authority figure, and plumb the depths of our psyche, which is symbolically like marrying our mother's the feminine side, the mysterious side, the the depth of the unconscious, being able to plumb the depths of our own unconscious. So Jung took the story in a metaphorical way, understood it in a metaphorical way for personal development. And then I, in my more neurobiological kind of interpretation, took it to yet another level of just looking at the role of embodied metaphor in the development of both individual consciousness and collective consciousness because this is in the tradition of Lakoff and Johnson's Metaphors We Live By, but they've written many, many books, including a whole huge philosophy tome about how thought is bootstrapped embodied metaphor. So children start by incorporating objects into their way of understanding the world and using their bodies with the objects. So whether it's putting a cup on their heads and calling that a hat or riding a broomstick, um, there's a very concrete enactment initially. And then over time, these things get internalized as thought and ideas and 
we lose the connection to the body eventually and it becomes completely abstract as we get more and more abstract. But the idea is that we can't have any abstract thought at all without these very, very concrete body-related metaphors. And you write that metaphor is the embodied basis for abstract thinking. Exactly. Exactly. And that does appear to be true. And how does that work? Because it sounds kind of paradoxical and even counterintuitive in ways, unless we can clearly define that whole messy-sounding equation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, let me see if I can explain how it works. It is paradoxical, and I do believe paradox is the cornerstone of the universe in every way. But let me give you an example that actually relates to my sister's research. When babies are turning into toddlers and starting to talk, my sister, who is a developmental psychologist at UCLA and part of her area of study is language, and she came up with the concept of proto-grammar, And this is the idea that before we learn full sentences, you know how like a baby starts with a single word and points, and that's how it's just instinctive to teach kids how to talk by pointing to objects and using single words. At the stage that they start to chunk words together, like two words or three words, what she noticed is that children use the context to fill in grammatically. So it's like they're trying to say, I want that. And the I is kind of implicit in the pointing, as is the want. And then the environment, the pointing outwards, is folded in for the that, whatever it may be a bottle or a candy or what have you. And as the sentences get more complex and more words are added, the environment gets less important. So they're creating, by necessity, they're creating a metaphorical language to communicate with the world around them. Exactly, exactly. And then, as you were just about to say, then they learn the symbols of language and then the outer world, the the actual reality, kind of takes a backstage to the symbols. Yes, and then the symbols are used to bootstrap one to the next to get more and more abstract and further, further, further and further away from concrete objects so that eventually where a child might start by learning the word for cop or mom that each of those things has to do with a person or an object that's very concrete. Eventually, we can talk about things like freedom and liberty that don't have any referent to the real world in that sort of concrete way. And it's because these symbols bootstrap. We bootstrap one, one from the next to be able to get more and more abstract and less and less concrete over time. How does that process occur evolutionarily, and how does that unfold in our lives, and how does that relate? I mean, at this point, I'm starting to think about the recursive patterns 
the fractal mm-hmm. recursive patterns that occur as we start doing that self-referential relating with the world around us, that our experiences of things loop back around, and, and each time we re-experience something and re-engage with something, we are expanding our understanding and awareness of the dynamics and of ourselves as well, our relationship with, with the world around us. How, Perfectly how- said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what it's like. So at some point, I mean, none of us really know exactly the, the point in humankind and how that happened. Uh, Julian Jaynes, uh, a number of decades ago, had the theory that, and this has to do with left brain versus right brain, and I think it was called the, maybe the evolution of the bicameral mind, something like that, had the theory that language started out by being externally perceived as the gods talking, that, that in the era where spirituality or religion or the gods were much more present in the everyday life of people, that people actually heard voices as coming from the outside and, and that these were perceived as the gods talking to them and that uh, that language eventually got internalized as thought. Certainly Vygotsky, who's a, one of the most important developmental theorists from Russia, believes that children begin with external speech. So you can hear little kids when they're alone practice talking out loud as they're narrating their own activities. So they might be playing a game and then talking you know, about what they're doing and that that precedes internal thought. So that would be an example of a kind of a recursive loop from some point in history that humankind internalized externally heard voices to children doing that at some point in development and then no longer needing to talk out loud in order to hear themselves think and then, you know, that loop happens internally and gets more sophisticated and the level of complexity of thought gets more and more sophisticated over time as practice happens. And then going back to that notion of the bicameral mind and the left and right brain and the importance mm-hmm. of integrating the two in a way that's mm-hmm. balanced, because one of the things that tends to happen in, in our Western culture is that we become overly fixated on those internal conversations and even external conversations, just these incessant kind of mm-hmm. chatter that goes on, which can become more and more divorced from any real meaning or sense of relationship with the world, with anything. Yeah, So absolutely, absolutely, yeah. We get in the same way that the abstract level of thought gets disconnected from the body and from the material world, we can get lost in worry or lost in thought in ways that don't serve us. And, yeah, I personally have been working to do quite the opposite <laughs> in the last several years of kind of a stance of no-think mm-hmm. in order to re-engage myself with the world more directly. So 
right, in a more embodied way. But then there's this other kind of paradoxical aspect to this that I'm thinking of, well, Piaget's idea of maturity was being able to see beyond the concreteness of reality and our thinking mm-hmm. and understanding of reality. And in our culture, we, at the same time that we get lost in abstract thinking, we also get kind of lost in this concrete notion of reality. Right. Well, I used to sort of be caught up in the idea of complexity as in complex thought and how superior that is and like Wittgenstein and language games and all this sort of thing. And then I discovered the work of Alan Shore, and this is the neurobiological sort of grounding that I had personally where I learned that emotional development is actually more important and more of a foundation than cognitive development. It sets the stage for cognitive development. And emotional development occurs pre-verbally in the first two years and happens in a non-verbal way. It's really an exchange of flow of emotion back and forth and that that is way more important as a foundation. And so for me, that's kind of revolutionized my way of understanding the relative importance of emotion versus thought. And, And now I understand that sound thought can't even happen without sound emotion underneath it. So that is both the nonverbal, body-based grounding in ourselves, and it helps tether us back into the world because our whole emotional system is our way of, of having relationship with the world and with other people. And our brains are social brains. They're open to other people and open to relationship all the time. And so it's a very different direction of grounding than the idea of grounding in thought. And so for me as a therapist and as a person and having just a personal journey that's very body-related, it's been very body-oriented, whether it's through rock climbing or dancing or yoga, I've become more attracted towards simplicity as the ultimate form of complexity, but it's a nonverbal kind of simplicity rather than getting seduced by the kind of verbal complexity that I used to be attracted to. Does that, does that make sense? Well, it makes sense to me because I've been thinking about a lot of these kind of things like the irreducibility of the world as it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah, our, which is the ultimate complexity, right? It's, exactly. It's wholeness. Exactly. Yes. And mm-hmm. in our minds, what we try to do is we try to reduce things as much as possible so that we can escape the actual direct experience of reality and just live in that abstract notion mm-hmm. in what mm-hmm. we might think of in the most simple ways, but is actually, as you were saying, this unnecessary complexity. Right. Well, and especially if we're mulling about it with the monkey chatter in the brain and going over it and over it and trying to figure out what can't be figured out. Right. Come, trying to um, come up with, with various theories to explain things in ways that are abstract and basically untethered to reality. Right. Or trying to predict what's going to happen, which 
Oh, yeah. I've also learned not to try to do by, I kind of learned it backwards through chaos theory, where for psychology, I think the most important conclusion is you can understand the pattern of things perfectly. You can model a system perfectly, a complex nonlinear system perfectly, and yet not be able to predict where it will go. And as a therapist, probably one of the biggest things that's helped to ground me in working with other people is not trying to predict what's going to happen and just being open to what does happen and working with that, which is what I think you're saying as well, in tethering ourselves back to the real world and its complexity, its fullness, which is irreducible. And that real world is something that we experience directly through our bodies, not through our thinking process. Exactly. Exactly. There's this wonderful thing that you wrote at the end of the article on myth, metaphor, and evolving self-awareness. I'm going to paraphrase it a bit. To have thorough access to memory of the past plus the cognitive flexibility not to have to know the future represents a high state of integration between left and right brain hemispheres, between mm-hmm. body-mind, implicit and explicit memory. And such integration maximizes our potential for spontaneous response and creative expression that is the hallmark of successful individuation. Ah, yeah. I do believe that, and looping it back to the Oedipus story, it was the fact that both father and son visited an oracle, the oracle of Delphi, to try to know what's going to happen that got them into trouble. Right. And they couldn't avoid it anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. And so that, that's a great lesson to us all. Right, and there's stories of people who find out something disastrous is going to happen and they stay home in bed and then something falls on their house and their roof collapses on them. So there's no escape. Yes, there's no, no escape from our fate. And trying to escape is a defensive closing off that only brings more suffering. It's like Buddha's second arrow, where the first arrow is the existential realities that each one of us faces like disease and death and old age and all of that stuff. But the second arrow is our resistance towards our fates and towards pain and suffering and everything that life offers. And that's where we bring much more suffering, the real suffering on ourselves, is by resisting. Yeah. Exactly. And also mystery is such an important part of life because if there's no mystery, what's the point of being alive if there's no mystery? And if there's no mystery, there's no creativity and there's no novelty. And novelty is actually what makes life interesting. So yeah, exactly. What's the point if there isn't something to learn and to be curious about and interested in? What is the point? And another thing from Mm -hmm. your article You continue along those lines that you say that this complex state of self-reflective awareness and openness to uncertainty is necessary to break the tragic chain of emotional and physical abuse and trauma that gets passed down from generation to generation. Mm -hmm. So how how does that work and how did you come 
to recognize that. Mm. Wow, you know, it's really interesting. I wrote that article a number of years ago, and the first version of it, because it's been through a couple of different versions over the years as different people have discovered it and then wanted a copy of it, you know, in their journal or their book or what have you. And I discovered that using the Oedipus story, just really following the story and coming to my own conclusion. But what I just realized when you read what I wrote, that that was prophetic in the sense that the very last article that I just finished, which will be published in the American Journal of Play, where I'm the guest editor for a special issue that's coming out this April, is exactly on that topic. It's on how intergenerational trauma gets passed from one generation to the next implicitly through, basically, in that article, it looks at play as one epigenetic mechanism that trauma begets trauma in the next generation. So it's interesting that I actually had forgotten I said that and then went on to look at the mechanisms, some deeper mechanisms by which that very thing happens. And because the intergenerational transmission of trauma happens implicitly, meaning it happens through body-based transmission. So the two, two sides of the brain, the right and the left, the right is more connected to implicit processes like body-based learning, emotional learning, and the left is explicit learning, which is top-down. So when someone tells you something and you learn something, you learn that fact, that's a top-down one versus when you're immersed in life and your body learns something experientially, that's a more implicit level. It's the implicit level that trauma begets trauma, and it takes an open self-awareness to both discover that and then break that chain of habit because things get locked in the body in the form of body habits so that a child exposed to a father who is, say, physically abusive very easily can grow up and become physically abusive as well because it becomes an instinct in the body. And continuing with what you wrote, which I think fits beautifully right here, you say that multi-generational research suggests that the best predictor of healthy, secure attachment in children is the capacity for their parents to tell a cohesive narrative about their own early childhood, regardless of whether it's idyllic or horrific. And I'm really mm -hmm. curious how that works, because just the ability of a parent to tell their own narrative in a cohesive way can change the passing on of this intergenerational trauma and abuse? Well, the ability to tell our own stories in a cohesive way is a clue to how emotionally regulated we are versus having PTSD, having symptoms like PTSD. So if when we start, say we have a history of abuse, if the very thought 
of that abuse dysregulates us so that we then get distracted by, say, flashbacks. Flashbacks will cause us to lose the story and get immersed in a sensory experience, for example, of what happened and dissociate from the moment. And so the ability to tell a full story that has emotion in it, not just the abstract you know, level of it, that's devoid of detail, which would be another form of insecure attachment that would be more like avoidant attachment or dismissive attachment. It's kind of a clue that even if we were traumatized and started out insecurely that we have an earned attachment, either because the person went through therapy or got involved in a good relationship later in life that helped calm them down and regulate them emotionally. And became able to contain the whole of that story, including all of the difficult emotions and feelings connected to it. Exactly. Exactly. So that we can actually remain present in our bodies, even as we're experiencing the flashback, the recursive flashback of, of those feelings and those memories. Right, and really, probably, it wouldn't be a flashback. A flashback memory tends to, that kind of flash memory tends to be a traumatic memory, and there's a new idea of memory reconsolidation being at the base of change in therapy. When we tell the story, if we tell it in a, a cohesive way, it's no longer a flashback. Now it's a well-integrated memory of a different kind and different parts of the brain are involved in it. So our very past get reintegrated into our memories in a different way when we're able to use the supportive relationships in the present to reintegrate the past our past. So there's another nonlinear piece is how past, present, and future remain kind of in nonlinear relationship and all present at all times. And that's a, a sort of a crazy piece of the picture is how we redo our past as we come to better grips and better foundations in the present. And it opens up the future at the very same time. Right. And this brings up the notion of imagination into this. Um, you, mm -hmm. At one point you write, imagination is a portal into reality rather than a defense against it. Well, the healthy imagination right. or the, or the non-traumatized imagination is a portal into reality, yeah. Right, a free, yeah. a free imagination. And I love that through imaginative play, we can actually change the outcome of old stories and play out different roles and even do role reversals to like broaden our perspective and, and even the dynamics of our relationships with everything and, and people around us. Yes, I have more and more in recent years focused on the importance of imagination as a healing tool, not just, you know, to make art or to do science or what have you, but as this very, very basic part of our being that is more connected to perception than 
people realize. I was kind of shocked to discover that the same areas of the brain that perceive at a sensory level are involved in imagination and that the big difference between the two is just a slight in the loop, in the recursive loop from top to bottom of sensory and imagination. There's just a slight difference in direction and that imagination is more top-down and perception is more bottom-up, but both are involved in both. And it really does take imagination in very basic ways. For example, somebody who's depressed is suffering from a lack of imagination to be able to conceive that the future would be different than the past. Right. That's a that's a really difficult one for people to deal with. I mean, I deal with that mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. But even going beyond pathologies, imagination, being able to integrate imagination, or as you say, to fuse imagination with reality and in a balanced way is critical in terms of not only in changing our own inner dynamics, but also changing the world around us. Exactly, exactly, and feeling feeling agency in the world. And going go back to that that little kid who points and says, "I want that." You know, he's incorporating. He's learning how to incorporate the world and use his body and language as a tool for changing the world. And that's really what I mean about imagination being a portal into the world is the way that technology is an extension of our senses and just how we are in the world, having power in the world and as well as power to change the world for better or worse, all of that is our, our acts of imagination. They begin with acts of imagination that then get extended through the body into the world so that there's, you know, we all too easily set up boundaries between ourselves and the world and self and other and this sort of thing. But viewing imagination that way, it becomes a way of opening, opening up the um, connection between ourselves and the world. And opening up the potentially infinite horizons of possibility, creative possibility. Exactly. Yeah. And that's a great note to end on because we're out of time and it's been, again, it's been absolutely wonderful talking to you about all this stuff. Well, I thank you so much, Tonio, for having me on board and it's been delightful to talk to you as well and maybe we'll continue this at some point because this has been so wonderful thank you so much well you're very welcome in any time i'd love to come for part three okay great and that was terry marks tarlow she's a clinical psychotherapist a yoga teacher artist and dancer specializing in deep transformational work bringing mindfulness embodied movement and creativity into her practice. She's the author of numerous articles and books, including Psyche's Veil and a recent coloring book for adults and older children called Truly Mindful Coloring, which explores the possibilities of healing through self-expression and self-examination. And this is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. Thank you all so much for listening, and until next time, have a great week.